We cross to our Wellington studio for Midweek Media Watch with Colin Peacock. Good evening, Colin. G'day, Karen. You want to start with health and safety? Yeah, I do a bit. Um, and I won't spend too long on it because when this happened, I did have a big old go on it on the Media Watch program. But this is um, the White Island Fakari rescue or recovery, I suppose, as it ended up being. Um, after that eruption back in September, you might remember, you know, there were some journalists and what you could call armchair pundits who were amplifying uh, calls that were coming from the family and from those brave helicopter pilots who'd been out there and uh, helped to bring people back immediately after the eruption. And they were urging, you know, the cops and the government, uh, even the prime minister, to authorise an immediate um, return to get uh, the bodies of, I think, eight people that were remaining, um, even though experts were saying it wasn't safe. And um, at the time, just to give you a flavour of it, um, Patrick Gow was was one of those. He actually went up in a, a helicopter for News Hub um, with one of the pilots who was urging um, a return to the island immediately to get those bodies back. Yeah, I mean, Tom, I'm sitting with you, mate, and you're actually shaking with anger right now. Uh, yeah, just... Oh, I just can't... Just speechless. Do you think the Prime Minister and officials should come up here and do what we're doing now? Have a look? Mate, I challenge Jacinda Ardern to come out and have a look for herself. Maybe not as easy as that, though, is it? <laughs> no, and at the time, you know, he was assured it would only take 20 minutes uh, to get all the bodies off the island and was urging the PM to act on that. Um, and, look, it is a legitimate question, isn't it, whether there is a kind of safety, uh, a risk-averse culture, um, a health and safety culture, if you like, that mitigates against, you know, people going in and um, saving lives because of, you know, they're concerned about exposing people to further risk. But um, as has been reported since then... Uh, when the SAS did go in there to recover bodies, uh, it took hours to prepare, and I think there was a three-hour window on the ground, uh, which they only made by minutes when returning the six bodies that were recoverable. And their commanding officers spoken about that, how it pushed the, the soldiers to their absolute limits. And this week, um, the, some of the media had made Official Information Act requests for details of how all this was done, and those came back to a couple of reporters um, and they revealed that the head of Defence Force had actually had to sign a special exemption that would bypass uh, the normal health and safety protocols. And that revealed, I think, quite a bit about what the real risks and the real uh, atmosphere and situation was on uh, Fakari White Island. Here, for example, is um, one of those who reported it was RNZ's Ben Strang. He summed it up like this. When eight members of the Defence Force were dropped by helicopter onto Fakari White Island in December there was a chance they could inhale toxic gases or have their skin burned by acidic sludge. Such was the state of the volcano four days after an explosive eruption that sent mud and rocks and a massive ash plume spewing from its crater. Dangerous. Yeah, and uh, I mean, the the stuff story on this um, said that the team had admitted they felt unprepared for what they described as unbelievable conditions. And as I mentioned there, they, they made the three-hour window they were given with just minutes to spare. This all involved, they had to have a rehearsal, a full rehearsal, before the operation itself, wearing these very heavy suits, uh, which were um, really, really awkward, really difficult and uncomfortable on the island itself. Um, so, you know... <laughs> They felt underprepared doing it. I think those pundits and journalists who were urging the defence force and people to give them the green light to go, you know, they would have had them um, on the island a couple of days earlier, at least, there, with even less preparation. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's pretty worrying when, when journalists 
uh, get behind efforts to do this. And, and we now know through journalists being patient, putting in their OIA requests that the conditions were terrible, uh, toxic, and not at all what we were hearing about um, from people who, you know, for, for understandable reasons, those pilots and family members really wanted to get on there and get, get the bodies back. Um, yeah, so legit question to ask if there is this culture that um, that means we're less likely to get um, effective rescues in time because people are worried about risks. But um, yeah, I don't think that's the way to do it, to have people urging um, these live operations when we just don't know what the risks are. And we had an update this evening, I see too, that uh, there are three victims uh, still in hospital in New Zealand. Uh, let's not forget about them. And they're in, all three are in Middlemore Hospital, and one of them's still in a critical condition. Yeah, it's a story that's got a very long tail. I mean, with also with the victims being scattered throughout the hospitals around the country and many of them being uh, taken away to Australia as well, even quite early in their treatment. And, uh, yeah, they were the saddest reports, I think, where um, you had surgeons explaining how the care was going to take years and years and multiple dozens of operations. And, uh, yeah, it's a story I think we will end up reading about for quite some time. RNZ in the firing line. Again. <laughs> Again, yeah, I know. Uh, making a bit of a habit of it. No, this was to do with a, an advertisement, an ad campaign, the biggest one in years, actually. This is um, this billboards by the roadside. Those have been up for a while now. Ads on the back of buses um, and also a digital advertising campaign. So uh, images and messages being slipped into people's uh, Instagram and Facebook feeds, uh, messages in people's podcasts as well, which has startled a few a few people. And uh, these sponsored ads, uh, RNZ's effectively paying a fairly small sum but paying nonetheless the likes of Facebook and Instagram to promote these messages and some journalists have not reacted very well at all uh, to some of these because they make comments about RNZ and the news and the environment they live in so the one that really got them going uh, was a message uh, to say if you think you have to pay for premium content we have news for you and we have news for you as the uh, the slogan that goes up with the RNZ logo. So lots of uh, lots of um, slogans that end with "We have news for you." But that one on the premium content was interpreted by a lot of journalists as a swing at the New Zealand Herald. Uh, they launched their digital subscriptions last year, uh, so finally stopping giving away all their news online for free, making people pay for it, uh, and uh, it's a big effort they've got there. And that was interpreted as state-funded RNZ spending taxpayers' money on promotions, which effectively, um, you know, took a swipe at the Herald and said that RNZ's offering was, you know, better and more pure because, you know, it, uh, it, it, you didn't have to pay for it. Um, so, yeah, this was this was quite annoying. So the Herald, Simon Wilson, for example, he went on Twitter to say, hey, RNZ, all news is paid for by ads, the cost of the paper at the newsagent, by subscription or sponsors or by taxes, meaning like you, RNZ, we pay for every second of your news and for your advertising promotions. So, you know, quite a bit of bitterness, I think, at this um, RNZ ad campaign. Especially when we've just jumped into bed with them all. Yeah, well, that is the interesting thing, because yeah, with this, what uh, the chief executive, Paul Thompson, has described as radical sharing, uh, we are now offering RNZ's content to pretty much any bona fide news operation in New Zealand that wants to run it. That's a way of increasing the public value and also addressing uh, the... Uh, the gaps that um, the under-pressure commercial media have in trying to cover everything. So this is RNZ's way of, you know, contributing and acknowledging the problems. And Paul Thompson, the chief executive, has spoken about this, um, both as RNZ chief executive and even in his capacity as the chair of an umbrella group of public 
broadcasters around the world called the Public Media Alliance, saying, you know, the time for battling with audiences uh, and, and fighting commercial rivals is past. We're all in this together. I'm paraphrasing. But he's, he's made these comments. So now, with that in mind as well, I think his peers in these commercial media companies are very unhappy that RNZ is now running an ad campaign that seems to be pointing to the fact that websites with ads on and um, and uh, media companies that try and charge you for their content are somehow not as attractive a proposition as RNZ's. And calling for those ads to be pulled, what's the likelihood of that? Uh, not going to happen, and today I'll get a comment from uh, RNZ's Head of Audience Engagement, Stephen Smith, uh, who I think has been broadly in charge of, of the campaign. He says, we're not planning any changes to it. He also noted in his response to me that some of these people who... Uh, or some of these uh, outfits and editors who have complained about the tone and the nature of RNZ's campaign are also the ones who are running RNZ's content. But as I mentioned to you just before, I think that's what's confusing them. And, you know, as there is a risk in this for RNZ, you know, because as the public broadcasting policy is all up in the air, you know, the TVNZ, RNZ, um, joint public media entity, whatever it's going to be... RNZ probably doesn't want to have the rest of the media being hostile to them uh, because all this is, is uh, you know, is a work in progress which is going to be argued out in public, the merits or otherwise of changing public broadcasting. So, I mean, RNZ has been positioning itself as an ally to them in tight times with the supply of content um, and this joint message that, you know, the media is under pressure and the media is crucial to our democracy and we've got to support it whatever way we can. Um, and this ad campaign has been interpreted very much, uh, well, unfathomable was the word put out in a stuff uh, opinion piece today, and uh, indefensible. So, yeah, they're really not happy about it. But RNZ say uh, they're not happy with all our messages, but we have an obligation, says RNZ and Stephen Smith, head of audience engagement, to make sure New Zealanders know where to find our content and the merits of it being uh, commercial free and uh, available to all. And more than just news, of course, as well. Yep, but this is a campaign very much focused on news and RNZ National. The other RNZ services don't feature in it. And you see, the the real thing behind this, though, is where some people say this is a PR disaster, a bit like, uh, or in some people's mind, um, coming hard on the heels of the RNZ concert controversy. Uh, And in a way, I mean, they're not really the same thing at all. Uh, the, The timing of this ad campaign is coincidental. But what's behind both things is RNZ's determination to reach a bigger and broader audience, and a younger audience too, in the case of that youth radio network, which we've spoken about before. So this ad campaign is, is, is trying to target and get messages across to people who aren't RNZ users at the moment, and that's their way of broadening the audience and, and serving audiences that haven't tended to engage with RNZ, even though they're paying for it like everybody else. Uh, but that I think we're now meeting the point, both with RNZ Concert and with this ad campaign, where RNZ's determination to build its audience is clashing with um, the needs and imperatives of the commercial media companies, which on one hand they're in partnership with uh, and because they're all in this together in tight times for news, but on the other hand when they're squabbling over audiences and promoting each other to try and persuade those audiences to come to them, that causes a conflict. Critic magazine, uh, Otago University student magazine, Critic, we spoke about this with Hayden Donnell last week. Yeah, so I wanted to bring that up again. So, um, yeah, just briefly, uh, Sinead Gill, the editor in her first edition, um, as editor in the first issue of the first term, uh, had a few politicians in. Um, 
the local politicians, David Clark, Michael Woodhouse, both Labor National and uh, uh, Labor and National respectively, um, and then Chloe Swarbrick of the Greens came to talk to them. She interviewed them, decided it wasn't worth publishing what they'd said. Um, uh, in fact, in the words of her editorial, we interviewed a few available politicians to give them the benefit of the doubt and to make sure I wasn't just being a C, said Sinead Gill. Uh, but we did interview them, and I was right. So she reckons right not to publish what they said. And she's all politicians. Uh, uh, party politics is boring and bullshit, and politicians are too. Um, so yeah, Hayden um, was kind of applauding, I think, uh, and the both of you applauded her right to you know make a, a bold stand and, and not just run copy from politicians because they turned up. So fair enough. Um, but then Hayden actually had a word with her uh, after that. Um, about why she decided to do it and whether she'd actually made her mind up that she wouldn't run what the politicians had said before they even spoke to her. But uh, this goes a couple of minutes here of Hayden talking to Sinead about her uh, her anti-politics stand. It is important um, to be informed and to know what parties are supporting which policies. I still am going to cover issues. I'm still going to cover policies that get put on the table. I'm just not going to include the party political shit-fighting that comes with it, just like net inherently. Because, um, yeah, party politics is quite oppositional. And it's kind of like, I want to go to students, I want to write about what their perspectives on these issues are, because every media outlet, you know, there's a million hot takes about, or just even just plain reporting about what these politicians think. But you don't see a lot like young people's voices in these discussions. They get talked about, but they don't get talked to. The way that politicians talk to students is kind of patronising. Yeah, absolutely, because, I mean, Michael Woodhouse, I asked him, you know, because he said, you know, students aren't going to be students forever, and then started listing all these economic policies for, like, quote-unquote grown-ups. And my response to that was, like, what about, you know, the hundreds of thousands of 18- to 22-year-olds that you're essentially cutting out if that's your stance? Your argument is that having interviews with David Clark and Michael Woodhouse and Chloe Swarbrook isn't going to get people engaged in politics, but actually maybe covering the issues is what might yeah, make them. Yeah, 100%. Because if David Clark turned around and said, actually, Labor's got this, this, this and that plan, then, you know, obviously that'd be 100% worth reporting on. Mm. I think he offered to talk to me about some stuff off the record, and I just I just almost don't want to know, because if I can't tell students, then what good is it to me? I can't be a part of this elite media political circle that knows everything and then has this kind of, like, air of, this patronising air of like, oh, young people don't know, but they're going to be fine. I, I'm very aware of the privileged position I have to make these stances and that I've probably terrified a lot of parents that their wee darlings are going to be these like anti-political themes. It was founded in genuine concern that politicians only planned on using critic as their only means to talk to Otago students because I did have a couple of parties offer phone interviews because they didn't know if they could make it to O-Week or I don't know if they even planned to make it to O-Week. Uh, it just makes me feel gross that these people don't won't want they don't want to come and talk to students themselves. They want to use my magazine to communicate with them and that was really the nail in the coffin to me. That's Sinead Gill, editor of Otago University Student Magazine, critic, and so ends Midweek Media Watch for this week. Colin, thank you very much. No worries. Uh, speak to you in a couple of weeks.